Welcome to episode 119 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, my man, how you doing? Hey, brother. How's it going? It's going. I'm super excited for us to get into this podcasting thing this week. Uh, I'm wicked stoked. I think we've got a good topic. I'm just glad that you put together the words wicked stoked. Yeah, wicked and stoked. Do you want to translate that for everybody who's like outside the New England area? Some people uh, might be concerned about the use of that word. About wicked or stoked? (laughs) Actually, maybe either one, but especially wicked. Uh, Let's see. If it was the Midwest, it'd be like super excited, oofta. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> I love when you translate stuff. What for else the would Midwest. we? What else could we do? Uh, like you could be like California and be like totally gnarly. Yeah, or like solid. Yeah, I'm. I'm like. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm done. I can't think of it. No, that's great. So why are you excited? Uh, I'm excited for podcasting. I, I, I get excited every week. I mean, I oh, don't sorry, my bad. Me too. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to podcast tonight, but I'm super wicked soaked about our podcasting next week because we're going to start our book cast, which is a brand new series we're doing. Oh, yeah. And we're going to go through Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey, which as of the moment of recording this right now, is actually on sale for 50% off at the WTS bookstore. I don't know if it's still going to be on sale when um, this airs on Wednesday, but if you're hearing this, you should go check right away if you're interested because it was on sale when I looked today. Um, but we're going to go through the first chapter, which is about 20 pages long. Uh, I read it once already. It took me about 40 minutes, so it's, it can get a little dense at times. Um, I was also like taking care of a dog at the same time, so I might go a little faster the second time. But we're just going to read it and share our thoughts and talk about how it's impacting us and, and what the outcomes are. And uh, I'm pretty excited. I mean, we should clarify. We're not going to read it to each other on the podcast. I mean, we're just we could talk about it. We could. We people could. are really into that. We might get sued for that though, because then we're like producing an audiobook. But uh, that is factually correct. I mean, I do love your soothing voice reading to me personally. Yeah, but I can see how that might not be everybody's no. joy-filled podcast. No. So yeah, we're not going to read the book to each other on on the air. Uh, what we are going to do though, uh, we're not going to do like an in-depth book analysis or like an explanation like you might get on Glory Cloud with Meredith Klein's work or what they're doing on Reform Forum with Voss Group. Um, we're just going to kind of read the book, talk about what we've learned, how it's impacting us, what kind of practical things we've applied. Um, and we would really love it if our listeners would join us on this kind of new adventure that we're doing or this new experiment. So pick it up. Um, you can get it wherever you want. You can get it anywhere books are sold. But we would really love it if you would go through the WTS bookstore. Um, it's just a really good ministry. Their proceeds help support the seminary. Um, it's just a really good way to go. And the beauty of this book and what we hope is this kind of new thing we're doing is that you can read along with us and enjoy the conversation or not read the book and also just enjoy the conversation because we're going to be talking about the contents in a kind of a general way. Like I said, we're not going to be like quoting probably from every single word or every single page. But what I love about this book that I think should inspire anybody to get it, even if you are not a preacher, maybe especially if you're not a preacher, is because – the latter chapters are all kind of pointed at specific individuals talking about kind of their preaching form as it fits within yeah. this idea of reform preaching. So each chapter is kind of looking at a different preacher. And I'm really excited about the analysis that's going to be done as I look at these examples. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that's really cool that I'm looking forward to is, you know, a lot of times we spend a lot of time reading like the theological treatises of some of these guys. Right. But we don't usually spend a lot of time studying their sermons. So like we we read William Perkins, The Art of Prophesying, but we don't really spend a lot of time looking at the actual sermons of him doing the prophesying. Um, same thing with Calvin. We read the Institutes. We might read his commentaries, but most of us don't spend a lot of time with his letters or his sermons. So I'm ex- I know that I, I've never read Calvin's sermons. So I'm excited to and get into some of the more like nitty gritty of their actual preaching because all of these people, although they were scholars, although they were writing and they considered that God's work, um, their primary calling and their first calling was that of the pulpit. And so I just think that they're examining their preaching is going to kind of give us a new sort of more fruit. So in this, they go through Zwingli, Bollinger, Ocalampedius, Calvin, Beza, um, general Puritan preaching, Sibs, Preston, Goodwin, Bunyan, um, all sorts of really great authors. Some people you've probably never heard of from the Dutch tradition. Um, and then, you know, classics like uh, Edwards and uh, Machine and stuff like that. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a great, um, a great read and a really good, I think, edifying kind of project for us. It's going to be good. So it have is. we sold this enough? Have you gotten your book already? Put this podcast down. Go order yeah. this book. <laughs> I know people who've got their book that are excited. And I have, I know people who've said like, I can't wait to get started. Yeah. yeah. And like they're like itching for the first episode so they can like move on to the next chapter. So awesome. um, we're going to try to keep up. We're going to do one chapter a month. Um, that Obviously, if you want to read faster than that, go ahead. But um, we're going to try to do one chapter a month. That'll give people lots of time to read and digest. Don't be an overachiever. Yeah. Just read the one chapter. Do it. Just do Marinate it. Marinate in it. So I should it. say just don't do it. Just don't go farther. <laughs> don't do it. But do it. Easy now. So Jesse, tonight we're going to talk about a topic that you came up with. So why don't you go ahead and intro it for us? So I've been thinking a lot about what it means to guard our hearts, what the Bible says about how we're to understand that topic, and then what we're supposed to do about that. So I wanted to bring it up to you because this is something I've just kind of been pondering a bit and kind of meditating in the scriptures. And of course, this primarily comes from the command that we get in Proverbs 4.23, which is above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And the reason why this really captivated me in a different way is I've been thinking a lot recently that, I mean, if you think about this, the heart of man is really the worst part before it's regenerate, and it's the best part afterwards. And I think there is a great difficulty in conversion to win the heart to God, and then I think the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Yeah. And I think that if we were to, if we had to, you know, give God, uh, this, if we had to understand God, what God was doing in the lives of people, we would, I think, really come to appreciate that the heart is the hardest thing to change. So, like, the reason why I kind of stumbled through that is because this is a, a, a strange thing to say. And I've often thought that, you know, when I look through the scriptures and I see all of these miracles of God intervening in the natural order, for me, that's not difficult for him to see like his power revealed in that way. Almost to think, well, that's easy for God. Yeah. And I look at like my own life, I look at those around me and I think when I go online or I look at Twitter and we see these people debate, like who has really ever changed somebody's heart uh, through that kind of dialogue? How difficult yeah. and hard hearted we are as people. And so I think there is, this shows like the mastery of God, the full power of God to actually change people's hearts. Yeah. And so I think that there's something in this for us to understand that is deeper than just, well, guarding our hearts means 
I don't do certain things. I abstain from bad behavior or from sinful practices or from bad thoughts. There's something more rich that I think this, the scriptures are commanding us to come into that is beyond just, well, let me create a list of do's and a list of don'ts. And as long as, to, as I stick to avoiding the don'ts, then really what I'm doing here is I'm guarding my heart. So I, my inclination is there's something more here that we really kind of need to develop as the scriptures unfold and kind of clarify and bring kind of greater, more fully orbed understanding of what it means to guard our hearts. I mean, have you been, have you thought about this kind of thing before? I have. Yeah. And, and this is one of those passages that, um, it sort of lends itself to what I call throw cushion, uh, theology. So like, it's one of those, um, or like needlepoint theology. It's one of those verses that ends up on like a plaque or on like a needlepoint pillow on like grandma's couch. Not, not our grandma. I don't know. Maybe she has this on her couch, but it's possible. just like on a grandma's couch. Um, and, <laughs> and what it is, is like this one verse gets like pulled out of context and gets like tossed and sprinkled around and sort of like, it becomes a wax nose for anything that you want it to be. And yeah. I remember like in high school, this verse, literally, if you were to ask me what this verse meant and you were talking about like 17 year old Tony or 18 year old Tony, it was like, don't, don't date casually because that's going right. to end up being a problem right. in the long run. Um, and then like, maybe when you get to college, it's like, okay, don't sleep around. But at the end of the day, it was about like your interactions with other people, your interactions, particularly as a guy with with young women or with girls, um, how I interact with them, how I how I let myself become attached to them. That's what this verse was about. But in reality, that's not at all what this verse is about this. That may be encompassed kind of in the general wisdom of what's being communicated here, but it's not about, I think we hear that word heart in English and we immediately go to like all of our sort of like post-romantic era conceptions of love and heart and romance and that kind of stuff. And that's really not at all what the scriptures are talking about here. Yeah, that's good. I like the example because I think we've, if you've grown up in the church, we've all been there where this verse has been used as kind of to leverage this idea of just being obedient of good behavior or meeting some kind of like standard. And sometimes the standard is set by the scriptures. Sometimes it's imposed in such a way where it's, there can be kind of a, a legalistic flavor to it. Right. And I've thought a lot about this verse or understanding the heart in light of Jesus' ministry as he's addressing both the disciples and those who are coming to him in search of like the gospel or understand what they have to do to be saved. Yeah. And so my mind immediately goes to like Mark 10 with their rich young man. And I don't want to make too much of this in terms of the language, but it's interesting to me that after he has that conversation with Jesus and he says, you know, go and sell everything. That's the thing that you lack here. He, it, the scriptures say that he went away disheartened by the same. Yeah. I mean, he was sorrowful. He had, he had all these kind of great possessions and he really couldn't give them up, at least not in his, in his heart, I guess, so to speak. And so, uh, what I find interesting is what Jesus says after that, when the disciples kind of confront Jesus as to what just went down here. Like, 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 how could you say that to him? This is crazy. And so he says in Mark 10, 23, just these couple of verses, which I found like crazy fascinating. So, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Yeah. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So here you have the sense of like Jesus is addressing really the heart of the matter, which is the heart of the man here. This is not necessarily a conversation just about giving up money or being more generous, but the man's heart was preoccupied with something 
in, in such a way that it wasn't properly guarded for the things of God, which is different than because Jesus doesn't say, well, here's what you lack. It's that you're doing X, Y, and Z sinful behaviors, and you just need to stop those things. Right. That will set your heart aright. Instead, what he's saying is the content of the heart will naturally be in such a way that it will, of course, avoid those things, but also that'll be focused on the kingdom of God. So I think that, again, this verse kind of is, you're right, taken out of context. Like how many, I don't know, like they're not Hallmark cards, but whatever version of Christian cards or like Testaments or whatever have this verse on it because it is right. very catchy and very pithy. But I think there's, there's the challenge here is more for us to understand what is the content of our hearts and how are we applying that toward our union with Christ? Yeah. Yeah, so I think maybe it'd be helpful for us just to sort of do a little bit of like nerdy linguistics sort of exegetical groundwork. Please. So the the in our mindset, like our Western 20th century mindset, the heart is the seat primarily of our emotional life. And then the mind is our the seat of our intellectual life. And um, in like Hebrew, the Hebrew mindset, and in the, the Greek a little bit too, the heart was not just the seat of the the emotions, but it was also the seat of the intellect, the seat of right. and even more so. It was actually more the seat of the intellect, and like the guts were the seat of the emotions. So th- you know, they're kind of they're kind of different cultures have different ideas of like where these metaphysical non-physical things live. And the heart was really like a representation of the entire inner man. And so we see in like Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, the heart is not really seen as a good thing, especially in the early chapters. So like Genesis six, five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then again, Genesis eight twenty one, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice. The Lord said in his heart, so like in his inner emotional, you know, mental, intellectual self. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither uh, will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So, so prior to regeneration in, in the, the natural man, the heart is this totally wicked, deceitful, vain, sick thing that nothing but evil flows from it. But after we're regenerated, then our inner man is renewed and all of a sudden the spirit takes up residence and our heart becomes new. It becomes something where um, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth flow or the words flow, right? The mouth speaks. So we see this transition that follows our regeneration from this wickedness in heart to this purity of heart and this purity, right? To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. That's what we're talking about is that our heart has to be united with Christ in order for anything good to come out of it. For it to be the spring of life already requires that we've tapped into the source of life, which is the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right on. I love that because that emphasizes that the purity of heart is a real thing. You know, as good staunch Calvinists, we're certainly not belittling or mitigating the doctrine of total depravity. We're at the same time, though, saying that this purity of heart, as you've already expressed it, that God gives us through regeneration is also equally a real thing. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by this sense that, I don't know, like heart protection is kind of like in a bear market. Like it's undervalued, I think, and underappreciated and misunderstood in our union with Christ. And in uh, Proverbs, like the expression, guard your heart, appears to put the work upon us, but it really does not imply a sufficiency or ability in ourselves to do that. 
Right. If we think of our, ourselves as our own keepers, then basically we're qu- claiming to be our own saviors as well. So in that verse, we get the sense that the commission is ours, though the power is totally God's. Right. And so I, I think that's where I'm kind of bridging off from what I used to think before, which is the guarding of the heart is really not passive. It's a reactionary effort focused, not just focused on like abstaining from sin. And that goes back to how the scriptures use heart, as you've just said. So what I've been thinking about is Romans one twelve, which reads, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you're right. Like there's an emphasis here where the scriptures are pointing to the heart as kind of the seat of adjudicating power. It's the place where because of our thinking, it determines essentially the, the darkness of our hearts, at least in the sense that there is a foolishness that is begetted from this futile thinking. And so Paul is emphasizing the heart is like the understanding part of man. And just as the state of the physical body depends upon the soundness and the vigor of the heart, so also does the temporal and everlasting state of the whole Christian depend upon the good or ill condition of the heart. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we, um, why don't I just read the whole, that whole pericope that this passage in question comes out of? So I'm going to read from uh, Proverbs 4.20 to Proverbs 4.27, and we can just unpack it a little bit. So it says, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ears to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart. For they are life to all who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So what what struck me as I read this, right, you know, you the the... The first rule in hermeneutics is context. The second rule in hermeneutics is context. And the third rule in hermeneutics is context. So you look at this this context and you're kind of confused at first because it's almost like this father is saying like my my words, my wisdom will bring you life. But that only finds its culmination and its perfection in the fact that these are divine words that are being communicated to this this son in the picture, which is kind of a stand-in for all of God's people. And so um, from these words, which I think you can sort of take and expand to be the entirety of scripture, from these words, life to all of those who find him in healing to their flesh. Let right. these words, let the scriptures not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart. So we've we've talked a lot about like the benefit and importance of memorizing. And, you know, for me, I just think the best way to guard your heart is just to sort of build an armor of scripture. You know, um, I will hide hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right. So it's it's not about um, outward conformity because outward conformity is easy to fake for the most part. Um, you can definitely abstain from sinful actions for an indefinite period of time with enough self-determination. But unless the heart is actually uh, properly oriented and indwelt by the spirit, and unless you're in union with Christ, all of that effort avails nothing. So, you know, this, this here, right, we've got these statement basically that the scriptures are the word of life. And that we are to guard our heart in which we have these scriptures because from it flows the springs of life. And then verses 24, 25, 26, and 27 shows all of the things that should be a result of us 
keeping the words of scripture in our heart, guarding those words, and then what the springs of life look like as those flow forth. We put away crooked speech and devious talk. We look forward and we we are intent on God's path where our ways are sure and we do not swerve uh, away from the path of righteousness towards right. the path of evil. So there's this progression in Proverbs 4, 20 through 27, you know, scripture, internalizing scripture, that that internalization of scripture flowing out into holiness. But as we said, there's this presupposition that in order for the heart to be the springs of life, it can't be the springs of evil, which is the way that the Bible presents it when it's a heart that's not regenerated by the spirit. Right. And we should ask, or after reading something like that, well, how do we know that we're able to discern righteousness? How can we do that thing? And to your point, it is a heart that has been filled with the word of God such that it now is a fountain. Because otherwise, what is the source of that flow? It's just our own sinful behavior. If, if the right. heart is empty in the sense that, even with the spirit present, in the sense that we have a, we're purified, as you said before, the call is now to go and guard that word by internalizing it, metabolizing it, and steadily chewing on it so that we now may discern what is true, that we may now walk in righteousness because yeah. we are so filled with the thinking of God that now that is acted out, now that place where all of our thinking and adjudicating happens, where decisions and vital actions are taking place, where all the operations of our lives come to a, the decision-making time, we are so filled with the Word of God, having guarded it, memorized it, internalized it, that we will actually live that out. And I think that's the hardest thing. I mean, I think it's fair to admit, or at least I want to say, I, th- I think it's serious work to keep our hearts. Like, yeah. that it, there is actually effort involved here. That's not to say that it's synergistic. I still think it's monergistic, just as we talked about sanctification. But the Hebrew in that passage there is like really emphatic. I think it actually reads, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it actually reads keep with all keeping or like keep, keep. It's like a double, uh, you know, like here we go, like get after it, get on it. And while you were giving kind of that explanation, I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's kind of like guarding a vault. Uh, Everything goes back to finance for me. Like it's, (laughs) it's one thing, like if you have a vault that you want to keep safe and you post two guards outside, but if you don't equip them with some kind of weapon, if you don't weaponize them, then their, their security is really for the most part in vain. Right. And so it's not just enough to say like, well, I'm going to put up these boundaries, but to weaponize yourself in a sense with the word of God, that's, that's the important thing. So I love John Flavel has a quote on this. He's written extensively on this subject and it's, it's definitely worth the read, but he writes in only the beautiful way that he can. The heart is the treasury, the hand and tongue, but the shops, the hand and tongue always begin where the heart ends. The heart contrives and the members execute. And that goes back to what you were saying from Luke six, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. I mean, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And you know, this, this kind of reminds me of that passage in John. Um, it's, it's near the, the account of the woman caught in adultery. It's in John seven. And basically Jesus is at this, uh, at one of the festivals and it's a festival where there's a water celebration and he stands up in the middle of the festival and calls for those who are thirsty to come to him. And then he says this, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Nice. And then this this is where I th- where I think it's key. It says, "Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified." And what's interesting is he's he's alluding to this passage in Ezekiel four forty seven. That's talking about the water flowing out of the temple. And, and the temple is this source of life where water flows out into um, into the rivers and then goes out into the world to bring about sort of this new creation. And, and you know, we're talking about this in terms of like, how do we guard our own hearts? But it's also, we have to recognize why do we guard our own hearts? Well, part of right. the reason we guard our hearts is not just because we want to be pure and we want to have unity with the spirit, but because out of our hearts, not just flows life, our life, but out of our hearts flows life to other people as we carry the spirit with us into our workplaces or into our places of business or places of commerce, we bring the Holy spirit with us. And then because we are properly guarding our hearts, we're not swerving to the left or right of what God has called us to then by the spirit, we're given opportunities to share those words of life with people around us. Yeah. I'm increasingly convinced that like the keeping and managing of the heart is really the essential business of the Christian's life because yeah. it's not, you've already said this, but it's not like the cleansing of the outer appearance that makes a Christian. I mean, cause after all, even hypocrites can show like a fair hand yep. and that's part of the problem with kind of this postmodern Christianity. We need people, Christians who are concerned with purifying, watching and ordering their hearts. And to the point of the idea that, our, the, really the content of our hearts influences our ministry, God rejects all duties. I mean, like all service, however seemingly glorious or effective, all of that is rejected if it's offered to him without a heart. So yeah. this idea of we can just kind of do it in kind of an empty, not even just rote way, but kind of like a cavalier, casual way. I mean, in fact, like the Christian who serves God without a heart is no more accepted with God than the person who performs it with a double-minded or hypocritical heart. Yeah. And so we've been quoting like a lot of scripture and and this also just popped into my head. You know, I'm just amazed at sometimes how hard God comes down against hypocrisy. Like, it's clear that he hates it, but also like the language he uses against it is so like astonishingly strong that it should give us pause because we should never want to be in that camp. And I think that's part of guarding the heart is making sure that we are not even shading ourselves toward any kind of hypocrisy because that is all of our tendency, especially among kind of our Christian groups, especially in our churches, is to sometimes kind of default into a position where we don't take the time to actively assess the content of our hearts and instead kind of keep up appearances when we really should be dealing with the internal business of our lives. So in Isaiah 66, when God is coming against the Israelites for their hypocrisy, which is really a hypocrisy of worship and idolatry, this is what he says. This is crazy. He says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who becomes an idol. I mean, that that is like such condemning, in a sense, like damning language yeah. against the people who should love God that I think that really gives me pause to consider that I need to understand what is the content of, of my own heart and spend more time, in a sense, meditating on that, getting the, the status of that, and then coming to God, letting that drive me to God for um, a real sacrifice of praise and uh, reconciliation so that... I know that when I walk out the door or just when I go downstairs to take out the trash from my wife, that my ministry is truly empowered 
because God does promise out of the wellspring of the heart, that is all of life comes. I want to be that person that when I go into the room, I make that room a better place. And part of that, I think, happens by way of our speech primarily, also our actions, of course, but primarily by what we say. And you know, the scriptures make clear that what we say comes from the center of our being. And I want that center of the being uh, to be appropriately united to Christ at all times. But that takes so much work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel though, right? Is it takes so much work that we could never accomplish on our own. Exactly. But we don't have to because the Holy Spirit is, you know, present in our life and, and it's not, uh, you know, we work out our fear, our salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works both or works in us both to will and to work to the glory of God. So it's it's not, you know, it is a tremendous amount of work, right? The the verb um, used that gets translated as keep or guard um, is extremely strong. It, it is, it's like a military term. It's, it's the armed guard that you would set out in front of a treasure or to guard your vineyard at night from robbers. It's not um, sort of this like, uh, you know, like sometimes the sort of like fluffy, froofy high school picture is like, um, you know, like a point guard in um, basketball, like somebody who whose job is to like defend the hoop and make sure that like, I, I don't know what a point guard does, but I'm just assuming from the <laughs> from the phrase, like it's someone who defends the hoop, right? It's someone who's trying right. to keep you from sure. scoring. And, um, you know, or a goalie is the one that I always heard is like, you have to have a good goalie for your heart. And there's a, there's a sort of frivolous nature to that. And there's also a sort of like reversibility to that, right? If your goalie messes up and they score a point, well, then you just have to work harder to score a point back. Right. But the, the picture that the Bible is painting is like, if a robber breaks in and destroys your vineyards, or if they steal your treasure, that's the end. Like there's no getting it back. There's no reversing that. And so it's, it's not just keeping your heart or guarding your heart, but it's keeping your heart with all diligence. So it's never letting up. It's never, it's never backing down from this task of guarding our heart. So I think you're absolutely right when you say that guarding the heart really is kind of the chief good work of the Christian. And and from that good work of diligently attending to the, the inner life of our, of our faith, the inner life of ourselves to the inner man, right? That's, I mean, that's Paul's whole theme in the book of Galatians is the contrast between the inner man, the outer man, the walking in the flesh, walking by the spirit, but that work of, of tending to our inner man and guarding our heart so that that inner man can produce fruit in our life by the power of the spirit. That really is the chief calling of the Christian. Right. And that's why I've been thinking that this is a difficult thing. And I say that to kind of pull us back into this understanding that it's the only person for whom it is not a difficult thing is God. But yeah. it, it, it still emphasizes just how powerful God is that he can affect that change and then carry us forward through sanctification to live in that change. Because it's really easy, for example, like in some sense, to gain a fluency, like in the language of prayer and to make a decent turn of phrase. But it's really difficult to get your heart broken for sin while you're confessing it yeah. and to have your heart melted by God's free grace while you were blessing it. Like just this morning, and this is totally unrelated because I've been thinking about this for a while and, and we talked about doing this podcast um, at, at least early yesterday. Yeah. Just this morning, I had a conversation with a, a dear brother at church and I asked him uh, how it was going. And he said, it's going pretty good, but my heart's a mess. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry about that. What's up? And he was just like, I mean, this morning 
I was just really struggling through these worship songs to be able to sing them in a way that I knew that God deserved to hear them, to yeah. really love him. And he said something I think is so profound that we probably all at least have thought about one time or another. And he said, it's just amazing because I don't think I can even love God without God giving me that love to give yeah. to him. And I was thinking, yeah, I, th- I said to him, you know what? You're in good company. There's a club for that. It's called Everybody and We Meet Here on the Lord's Day. Because yeah. that is the truth. Like when God gives you that glimpse, either all at once or an increasing measure on kind of the margin of just how kind of depraved your heart is, it, it can really undo you. And I think that this is what makes it tough is that keeping with all diligence, there's again, this idea that the duty is ours, but the power is God's. And that balance, even like we talked about in sanctification, is real. And yet we do need to soldier on. We need to struggle through that. We need to continually come to our knees. Yeah. But we need to develop this broken heart for sin. We need to come before God confessing it with real emotion that is not fabricated, but has come from a heart that's been won over because it has it has really vexed the spirit. And it has, you know, not, not in the immutable sense like we talked about, but in the sense that it displeases God and that we are moved not by just pure law keeping, but out of love. And I mean, I'll be the first one to admit, like, I, sometimes I don't know what it means to love God. I mean, that's just a true confession because yeah, it's a difficult thing. I mean, do you know what I mean? Or am I just like totally rambling at this point? No, no, you're not. I mean, I, I think you're right is like, there are times, you know, this is, this is Paul in Romans seven, right? The good that I want to do, I do not do. And, and the evil that I hate, I somehow find myself falling into. And I, I think that that applies um, also to, if not especially to, the task of loving God, right? And and loving God is a task, right? It's a command. It's law. It's not something that's optional. It's something that we have to right. work at. It's something that we have to have to try to cultivate in our lives. But there are times that I think you're right. Where where I don't even know what it means to love God. What 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 do I do in in scenario B here that best loves God? How do I love the Lord with all my heart and soul? You know. I had a conversation with someone the other day about divine simplicity, and it kind of gave me this thought that like as composite beings, as composite creatures, is it even possible for me to love anything with my whole heart? Or or am I such a sort of splintered, fractured person or fractured being that my attention is always going to be divided? And on this side of glory, like that's the case. Like there's always things that are going to take my attention away. And so this, this crying out to God, this, this, um, this just sort of getting at it, like it's, it's, it's hard work to be on your knees in prayer, like not just like figuratively, but like really on your knees in prayer, it's hard work to spend time in prayer. Like I'm, I'm not as faithful to pray as I probably should be, or as I would like to be. But the reality is like, it takes practice. So, you know, if you're not in a habit of prayer, you can't just assume you're going to be able to all of a sudden one day decide you're going to pray for an hour every day. Right. That's going to be very discouraging. It takes work and practice. But I think you're right that there are times where the the best we can do is to cry out, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Right on. And, and that's, you know, I was reading in, um, in Voss's, um, biblical theology this morning in, in some of my devotional study. And he talks about how Abraham's faith, part of what Genesis is doing in showing that Abraham is the father of faith, right? We think of him as this, this chief example of faith, but he's also this guy who, um, who, 
tries to claim the promises of God physically, but then even when he trusts in the promises of God, he still then reveals that he's a little bit nervous about it. So like he, he believes God that God is going to deliver the promised land to him. But then in the actual receiving of that promised land, he is nervous about it and wants to talk about, well, I don't have an heir. Right. Or he, um, I, I, I don't think that Voss was making this argument, but I heard someone make the argument that the fact that Abraham insisted on buying the land and following the customs of the day showed that like he was trying to claim it himself. I don't know that I want to go that far, but the point that Voss makes is that faith is grasping onto an infinite object. So as much as we grasp with faith, there's always more to grasp. And so Abraham right. has this picture of it. He gets a he gets a picture of what God has for him and he grasps and takes hold of it by faith. And in that taking hold of it by faith, he gets a glimpse of how much more there is. And so what looks like a lack of faith is actually faith just further reaching out to grasp onto this infinite promise that just never ends. And that's, that's where we are is like, as soon as we feel like we're, we've got it together, we recognize how much further there is to go. As soon as I look at my life and realize, man, I am actually making progress in holiness. Right, I, I'm I'm making progress in this area. Then all of a sudden, you get this glimpse of how far short you still are, and and there's this like existential moment where you have to think like, okay, I have to trust that the Lord has brought me where I am, and now I have to trust that He's going to continue to bring me forward. And that right. that second stage, that's a hard step to make, and and it's only the grace of God and the mercy of God that any of us continue to make those steps. Right, and it's super unnerving. That yeah. sense. It's not necessarily the sensibility that I'm not a Christian or not saved, that God hasn't, hasn't by divine, divine decree elected me and brought me into the family, but this, just this sense of how far there is to go, maybe, or how desperate I still am, despite the kind of outward trappings of maturity, however yeah. those might be presented in my life. Like you said, there's always, I guess, more to reach, more, always more to grasp after, and it's that, I guess willingness, in a sense, by God's power to continue to reach out then and continue to hold on tight when it seems like, you know, everything in your life wants you just to let go. Because yeah. I think you said before, like the scripture necessarily presupposes a previous work in this idea. And it's the work of sanctification, which, you know, the heart by giving it, it gives it kind of this right and new spiritual bite and inclination. So I think sanctif- sanctification is a modern just a work of God because it's this renovation of the soul after the image of God. And when that happens, all of a sudden, I think the things which we sometimes by our own efforts to just be better people, even be better Christians, we want to kind of deal with, God allows them to be dealt with properly by this filling. So we have like self-dependence is removed by faith. Self-love is removed by love for God. Self-will is removed by like submission to God's will. Self-seeking is removed by self-denial. So I think like this guarding of the heart means that the Christian is committed to the constant care, almost like a carekeeper. Um, and there's like a diligence of the re- renewed man to preserve his soul in that yeah. holy state in which the grace of God has brought it. I mean, there's, there's yeah. clarity there that God has brought it into that state. And not that we're to preserve it now once in that state as if he steps away and takes his hands off of us. But merely, I don't even say that we're to cooperate that, but we're like to live in submission to that, uh, pursuing it as if it were our own, but knowing that it's God, in fact, who empowers all of that. And that's a daily perseverance to hold firmly, I think, to what God has established and what the Holy Spirit sustains. You know, what this makes me think of, honestly, because I was doing this this morning, is uh, my guitars. So, I it's cold here now. And if there's one thing that my guitars really hate, it's the cold. So, 
I often will go out and warm up the car, not for me, but because I know if I don't warm up the guitar, by the time I take the guitars like to church, for instance, they're going to hate the cold so much that they'll be like totally out of tune. I can tune them right here and then put them in the car for like five minutes and they're going to be, they're going to sound awful once I take them back out of the car. And it it always just surprises me. Such a funny thing, such really like a small influence for a small period of time causes them to go so out of tune. But I think honestly, that is the Christian life. Like it's a guitar that is so easily influenced by these like small things that, you know, even a small amount of sin or distraction could disturb even the most gracious heart. And so we have to be on guard. Like we have to be ready, not just to, to kind of promote the best situation possible so that we can keep our hearts on guard, but to be, you know, ready to always tune, to always have a constant ear toward listening to what our hearts sound like. This metaphor is getting out of hand. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, I mean, to me, I, I just, I just think of these like guitars that are so easily influenced and it just makes me mad and it makes me mad that they so quickly go out of tune. Yeah. And, and we're like that, right? We, God tunes us up. He, you know, he starts to move us one direction. We start to make progress and then something comes our way that we're not expecting. And all of a sudden we fall back. Right. And in the same way that you have to continually tune your guitar even when you tuned it right before you left the house, God still continues to tune us. And that that's the beauty of, you know, the gospel is not just justification, right? There are people that want to treat the gospel as though justification is the gospel, and then everything else that happens after it, well, that's good too, but that's not the gospel. And, you know, particularly like the Lutheran strain of thinking, the gospel is all about the legal justification that we have in Christ. Right. Um, and then everything after that, that is, is just a consequence of justification. But the reform perspective is so much more robust than that, is that the gospel is that we get Christ and with him all his benefits, right? We talked Amen. about that, to bring it back to union with Christ. And in one sense, it's Christ who guards our heart. It's the Holy Spirit who guards our heart. But in another sense, and not in a synergistic cooperative sense, the the Spirit does that in large part by changing us and transforming us and then utilizing our own motivations and desires to bring about his intended mean. Right. And so so there's a, a strictly monergistic sense to sanctification that that the Spirit of Christ takes up residence. And because of that, there's a concrete once for all permanent change that happens. But then out of that flows all sorts of things. And, and I wanted just to read a little bit from the, the Westminster confession of faith. So this is chapter 16 on good works. And this is article three. It says their ability. So just got done talking about what good works are and then who it is that can do good works and how they do it. And it says here, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ and that they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces that they have received. There is required an actual influence of the same Holy spirit to work in them, to will and to do his good pleasure. Yet they are not hair upon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. And, and to me, I read that and it's this, it's like a dance, right? There's, there's the spirit and the spirit is doing what the spirit does. But the fact that the spirit is doing what the spirit does, does not in any sense absolve us from being diligent to attend to what the spirit is calling us to do. And the the beauty of it, the, the way that this mechanism works is that 
we can have confidence and we can be, you know, apart from the work of the spirit, that would be the most just depressing, soul crushing thing I could hear that, that even though the spirit is working, even though the spirit is the one that does this, we still have to be diligent. That would be really soul crushing if it wasn't for that first part, that it's the spirit who empowers it. So our diligence is guaranteed success in the long run because the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do that. And th- this goes back, you know, I don't I don't want to drag up the John Piper, Mark Jones, kerfluffle um, about good works and the attainment of salvation and all that stuff. But this goes back to why that conversation is important, right? All of the Orthodox commentators, um, R. Scott Clark, Mark Jones, Mike Horton, all of the people that have talked about this in any sense, all affirm in slightly nuanced ways that at the end of the day, no one will enter into uh, final glorification. No one will enter into their final reward if they have not lived a life that is marked by the fruit of the spirit. Now where the, where the confusion or the, the disagreement comes up is exactly what it means and exactly what the relationship is between the fruit that the spirit bears and the attainment of salvation. But at the end of the day, I am guaranteed success in my glorification. The role that I play in my own sanctification and in my own glorification, that role that I play is guaranteed success because what the Holy Spirit has done in my life, that these good works that God has prepared beforehand for me to walk in, I'm actually going to walk in them. It's not that God has laid out this path and said, good luck. You know, that's kind of like, I mean, the Arminian position is kind of like that. Right. You you've got this path of good works that God has put in front of you and hopefully you walk it. And if you don't, maybe you're going to fall all the way off the path and end up back in hell. Like that's a really terrifying thought. And that's the beauty of the reform perspective on this is that we we have this path in front of us. We're empowered to walk on it and we're guaranteed success in finding our way because that's what the Holy Spirit has promised us. Right on. Well said. I mean, so I think like as we kind of think about kind of bringing this conversation to close. Let's chat about like how we would say the Bible, the Bible kind of practically encourages us to guide our hearts. What, what it is that the Bible requires of us of us, or what are some things that we can you know, kind of do from day to day. And, I, and I'll give one just to start us off with. I mean, I think the one of the things that I've been thinking about and trying to practice is just, I think the Bible makes it clear that we ought to study the state of our hearts regularly, which is in a sense, to use like a worldly term, kind of doing some soul searching on a regular basis and being honest with when we're in a situation, why do we feel that way? What is it that's driving us to behave or to react or to think in such a way? Because worldly persons, there's no desire on their part to assess the contents or status of their hearts because it can be an awkward thing. It can be a very disturbing thing. But I think the Christian uniquely knows the advantage of assessing the heart, especially against the standard of the law, so that he finds need continually for a Savior and a sustainer. Because the law drives us to Christ for forgiveness, and then Christ drives us back to the law for holy living. Yep. And again, to use like a financial analogy, bankrupt people have no desire to look at the balance of their debt. But the one who's endeavoring to live life with some kind of fiscal responsibility will know whether or not they're making progress by examining their balances. And I think that's what the Bible would call us to regularly do, because not only does it humble us and in a sense humiliate us, because it shows again just how inadequate we are, how even at the smallest level, like, I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life, but if you've ever fought a besetting sin and then Christ has given you victory over that, there can be a period of time where you're like, man, I'm a pretty good Christian. Like yeah. that sin that was like so regular, that was such a problem. Yeah, that's gone now. So I'm, I'm actually pretty awesome. 
You know, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me anymore. And it's not until we regularly assess the state of our hearts, we constantly be saying to ourselves, I am only a good Christian because of Christ. I have a great yeah. Savior who is continually doing work in my heart, who is showing me because I take time to ponder it and look at its status, that there is still more work to do, that he's sending his workmen through circumstances and through pain and through trials and through suffering to do that very thing. But I just think that aside from praying and being in the scripture daily, uh, because why would we not avail ourselves of that kind of food for our spirits? This is like the, the next thing that should be coupled with that is just taking status of our hearts. And aside from me starting to think about this, that, that was not my regular practice to spend yeah. any time really thinking about, again, why I behave the way I do. What is the root of this stuff? And what is my heart really like today in this moment? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. And I, I think, you know, what, once you have in place, I feel like a broken record on this. And, and I can't say this enough, but it feels like maybe I say it too much. But Bible memorization has really radically changed my life. Like we talked about this when you were here for Christmas, like even something that's seemingly small, like whether or not I find a joke funny that uses the Lord's name in it. Right. right? And, and thinking about, I'm in this section um, and it's, it's a really hard section to memorize for me for some reason, the section in the shorter catechism that's going through the 10 commandments. And, you know, we were talking about one of the things I noticed is that, um, the the third commandment, which is a prohibition against using the Lord's name vainly, also is a command to positively use the Lord's name properly. And in order to do that, you have to use the Lord's name. So something right. as small as like, um, you know, if I'm at work and someone asks me how my weekend was, I say, oh, yeah, I really had a great time at church. I love I love the people in my church. If I don't take that time to also say, and God has just been really gracious to me and really, you know, really has blessed me in my life. I'm actually violating the third commandment because I'm not properly using his name, his attributes, his titles, his word, his works, his ordinances. I'm not using those for reverend and holy means. And, and for me, that act of memorizing the scripture has caused me to be in this constant habit of keeping short accounts. Right. So, um, you know, I, you memorize the commandments, you memorize uh, the the duties and, and uh, things that are forbidden in the commandments. And then all of a sudden you've got this mental framework for your whole life. And, and all everything you do is being assessed against this measure of the law. And right. for me, that has been really, really, um, it's been painful surgery. Like if I'm being honest, it's been painful surgery for the Lord to just cut away at the sin that's in my life that I wasn't even aware of. I wasn't even thinking of, um, because it just, it just wasn't on my radar. And so for me, that's been really, really helpful to getting that point of keeping short, short accounts with God is you can't keep short accounts unless you know what the standard is, right? If I'm trying to make progress on a debt, if I'm not keeping track of what the standard is and how, what, what my balances are and what's required of me by my various debtors or various lenders, then how can I know if I'm making progress? How can I know if I've missed a payment if I don't know what the do, what the deadline is or right. the due date is? How can I know if I violated the, the terms of my contract with the student loan company if I have never read the contract? So for me, I know it sounds like this is Christianity 101 and it kind of is. 
But you're exactly right that if we don't avail ourselves of the diligent use of the scriptures, which comes primarily in the preaching of the word on the Lord's day, but also in private reading and other, other means, then we can't possibly be guarding our hearts because all of the armor that God has given us to do that, to keep our hearts, all the tools he's given us to maintain that they lie sort of rusting in a shed if we never touch them. And they're all in the scriptures. They're all there. So here's why that's like a perfect example of what I'm talking about, because just as in the third commandment is so much more rich and nuanced when we understand it properly in that way, because it involves not just, again, abstaining from using the Lord's name in vain, but using it properly. So I'm coming to learn is the same thing true with guarding our hearts. It's not just about keeping things out, but what we're putting in, what we're diligently, how we're diligently kind of looking over it, managing it as it were as, as stewards really of what God has given us. And and part of that is of course, keeping things out. But part of it, I think kind of like you're saying is uh, grieving over sin. Like may, I love that there's a, there's a prayer in the Valley of vision, which I won't quote in its entirety, but there's a single line that says, make me see sin in all its odious colors that I may hate it. This idea that, you know, like just like a fleck of dust in the eye, which although it's like a small irritant, like causes your body great suffering. You know what I mean? Like you can't do anything if you got something in your eye until you deal with that. Uh, Even like if you're in a meeting or a public setting, like you've got to like manage that and adjust that. So like every small sin should be, it should cause us that kind of pain. But to get to that place where our hearts are that soft is again, a mighty work of God, but something that we should be pursuing. We should be asking God, make me like this, make me so sensitive. And uh, yeah, that's about being in the Lord's house and the Lord's day, hearing the Lord's word. It's about being in prayer. Continue. It's about having like a, a deep prayer closet. It's about being diligent in those things. Um, it's of course about put you know putting strategies in place to assist the heart. Like I, I wouldn't say that we shouldn't put kind of self-imposed boundaries and constraints that will help us walk more closely with God and avoid occasions where heart may be induced to sin. But it's just so much more than that. And the problem with this verse, in my opinion, is that even as we talk about it now, I don't even know how deep that well goes yeah. in the sense that I think that God for the rest of my life and even into eternity perhaps will be continuing to show me the places where I am not guarding as as diligently as I ought to, that there are things like this third commandment application that, as you say, we're not even on the radar, but somehow God yeah. very graciously puts them on our radar and then gives us the strength and the wherewithal once he makes us aware of them to move forward and to kill them. Yeah. And I think that's, a, like you said, that is as much a part of the gospel as anything else, in my opinion. And yeah. that is the beauty of the gospel so that the, even the mature Christian never graduates from that school, but is always sitting at the desk as a student. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't, uh, why don't we, why don't we close with this quote from Matthew Henry on this, on this verse? He says, um, out of a heart well-kept will flow living issues, good products to the glory of God and the edification of others. Or, in general, all the actions of the life flow from the heart, and therefore keeping that is making the tree good and healing the springs. Our lives will be regular or irregular, comfortable or uncomfortable, according as our hearts are kept or neglected. Wow. Man, he has a way with words. So, some parts in his commentaries, you're like, man, I wish you would just speak like a normal person. But this, this just is, it's, it's just good. It's concise. It's so good. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful turn of phrase. See, yeah. with us, you're always just going to get like pure unbridled honesty. I laugh because <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I've thought that. Like, come on, Matthew Henry, just spit it out. Yeah. 
Yeah, he did it in this one though. Yeah, he he absolutely crushed that. There's no way that I could even come close to saying that in yeah. the same way or better. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that probably <laughs> just about does it. We have these episodes once in a while where we get done and we're like we're just exhausted and like we we beat up, we're like beat up and that's good. Like it's not bad that we're right. a little beat up after something like this. But I know that I'm going to go away from this really like taking to heart and excuse the pun, but like taking to heart and thinking through like, where am I not keeping short accounts with God? Yeah. Where, where have I let my, um, let my diligence slip in, um, in maintaining and striving towards holiness and, um, through prayer and through the power of the spirit that God would graciously grant that I might be renewed in my diligence. Amen. I mean, a lot of this, I think, is coming to a place where we are really honest before ourselves and seeking that kind of honesty, you know, going into a quiet room and taking time, as you said, to keep short accounts or to meditate what those on what those accounts are or could be is a really difficult thing. So, yeah, yeah I hope I hope maybe I hope everybody feels as beat up as we do <laughs> in the sense that, um, yeah, join the club here. Like, so by way of encouragement, if you felt this way before at any point in your walk with God, you're not alone. I mean, I, I love that even uh, John Owen struggled with this kind of thing. And I remember him writing, I think in the glory of Christ, something to the extent of sometimes you're in the desert and it's not because God is trying to punish you uh, or you're wrestling with hard stuff, not because God is trying to punish you. But what he's doing is a gracious work in which he's reminding you of how beautiful it is to be united with Christ yeah, and to have a relationship with him that is not just based on some kind of loose identity uh, based on what you do on a Sunday morning, uh, but because you are in love with him and he has welcomed you into that fellowship. And and that's what I so desperately want. And guarding our hearts is really more about being in that fellowship than it is just about avoiding bad behaviors or or keeping some kind of outward conformity. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word to end on. Alrighty. Well, I guess next week, and I mean, I don't guess, I know next week <laughs> we're getting into some reform preaching. We are. And not and that we're excited. going to be preaching. No, 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 We're no, going no, to be no, reading no, no. the book Reformed Preaching. That's, that's true. I, that is a good word of clarification. Not a preacher. Not a preacher. Yeah. So pick up the book. You still got a little time. Uh, we're going to go through chapter one. So get your book, read your book and join us for the book cast. Awesome. Well, until then, when we talk about reform preaching, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>